Hey, this is Kevin, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. As we are all enjoying our holiday season, uh, Gaurav and I have decided to release another uh, formerly unpublished portion uh, in one of our episodes back in season one. And this was from an episode called Why is Music Not a Universal Language? Featuring a musician. Our expert storyteller for that conversation uh, is Greg Pliska. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, if you've ever been to an IMAX movie theater, uh, you know that there's a short clip that they always play before the movie actually starts that showcases the stunning graphics and the epic sound effect of IMAX movie with a countdown and watch a movie or be in one slogan. Greg is the musician who orchestrated the music for that clip. Pretty cool, we know. So in this part of the conversation, Greg shares with us uh, a bit about the intricacies of creating music for movies and theater, which he does a lot at a professional level. How do you make sure that your music doesn't get into the way of your acting? And when do you want your music to take center stage of your movie or play? Those are all important storytelling choices that a musician needs to make. And also, uh, we have Greg break down some of the musical jargons. Uh, what exactly is orchestration? What is composition? How do they serve uh, storytelling, respectively? So without further ado, let's get into our bonus conversation with Greg. On your point about each part contributing to this overall goal and theme, do you ever need to worry about uh, cohesion with other music or scores in that same piece of film or, or theater? That's also a great question. You know, uh, especially as film more and more has pop music in it, has other uh, often contemporary pop because people are looking to place their songs into movies, and so a lot of a lot of film is scored with us with songs, and that was certainly true of Trust and, uh, and other things I've worked on. So you have to be conscious of of how you fit in with those things. And there's actually a couple moments in Trust I'm really proud of what we did, where there's a piece of score that ends on a single note that actually bleeds over the pop song that comes in. And, and I think for the viewer, my hope is that the viewer doesn't realize those are two different things, that it just seems like a seamless musical fabric that's telling a story. Um, that was also true, we talked about Warhorse, the, the play a little bit before we started recording, because um, I was the music director for that show. And that show has a ton of recorded music that serves as underscoring. Um, but it also has songs that the cast sing, uh, their folk songs, they're, they're, some of them are original, but they're all written in the style of English folk song. And so there are a lot of places in that score where there's this found music, there's this traditional folk song that is being overlapped or integrated with the score that the composer created. 
Um, and yeah, the goal is always to make those things feel like they all belong together. Or if they don't belong together, that's a that's there for a reason too. There's a jarring, you know, suddenly the music is out of tune, the song comes in and it's clashing with the score that existed. And that's an intentional choice too. Yeah, and you know, we were talking about Warhurst before we started. You know, I grew up in Toronto and I actually saw it while I was in Toronto. And what I love about that show is that how intricate it is, you know, with the puppetry and you know, the set design and the emotion. And it's a very intricate show. And the music plays such an important role there because of the horse. Because yeah. the horse isn't like walking, if I remember correctly, isn't like walking or talking. It's not like an animated show. The horse's emotion is, a, is the bedrock. It's the soul of the show. And that's all through music. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about writing the emo emotion for the horse? Sure, sure. Um, and for that show, I didn't actually write any of the music. Yeah. I was the music director and the, mm -hmm. the uh, I did some of the, the vocal arrangements and so on. The um, yeah, that show is a, is magical because there are these horse puppets that people leave the show swearing were real horses and were really communicating. But of course, they're they're puppeted, and you see the puppeteers all the time. It's not like their puppeteers are trying to be hidden. Right. So part of that is just the artistry of the, the puppeteers. It's a company called Handspring Puppets from South Africa that designed and, and crafted them. And they're extraordinary. Um, and then, as you said, another part of it is the music, which underscores entire scenes uh, the way a score does in a film. Right. In a film, you can have music underneath entire scenes, entire bits of dialogue. Obviously, the Star Wars movies are a kind of extreme example of that where John Williams score is going throughout. Um, it's harder to do that in a, in a live play because the actors are not you know, fixed in time. A scene might take a few seconds longer or shorter or you know, things, things expand and contract with each performance. Uh, the composer did a really clever job of creating a series of musical cues that overlapped and kind of dovetailed. So if a particular scene was going long, there was enough music to stay underneath that scene. Uh, and then you could transition when you needed to, or if you needed to transition sooner, it would still feel seamless. And you know, there's this, there's this trick that we have to do when we're scoring something like that, which is to not say too much. Right, because the actors are saying things, the performance is telling us something, the visual is telling us something. And I think, you know, sometimes we say when, if you come out of a movie and you didn't notice the music, that might mean the composer actually did a great job because the music was just a seamless part of the experience. Um, uh, that's not always the case, of course, but, but it's very easy for the music to become intrusive or jarring or to suddenly take away from what the story is. Um, it's like that hologram thing. We're just one part of the whole piece of storytelling. And if it, you kind of have to figure out where you need to stay out of the way or where you don't need to say too much because the acting is doing it. That's great. And another, I guess, more general example that I can think of is uh, a cartoon actually, Tom and Jerry, which I grew up loving. He loves Tom and Jerry. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it's kind of like how you talked about, you know, when the music and, and like this visual um, content is really good, you don't, you don't tend to notice it. I remember when I first you know, kind of watched these things, those music just 
so seamlessly and naturally uh, blend into the animation. And I really, you know, think that, you know, this is how, how Jerry is laughing or this is how, you know, Tom is walking and stuff like that. And it, it's just amazing when you actually think about it, that cartoon had no line pretty much whatsoever. And the whole uh, sequence is kind of just underscored by music, like you said. So that is definitely, you know, one kind of example where we see the, the magic of music in storytelling. Uh, on the contrary of that, you said the trick is to not say too much, but is there points in time where you would want the music to take center stage of the theater or the scene? Mm -hmm. That's a great, great question. And the Tom and Jerry example is a fascinating one because if you scored a live action film, the way those cartoons are scored, it would be ridiculous, right? There is mm -hmm. a, in fact, we, we use the term cartooning to say that a composer is doing too much, right? Because in, in a cartoon, every gesture, every move, every step, you know, is underscored and given a, you know, a, a big musical gesture. And if I did that in a film, maybe in a comedy, you'd get away with it. But 98% of the time in a live action human story, that would just be totally destructive because the music suddenly intrudes. I think, I think where you want the music to take center stage um, is when the emotion justifies it. Um, it's almost like you, you, know, you hold back until you can't take it anymore and then you let the music happen. Um, it's like somebody once said, you know, nothing makes people cry more in a movie than a character trying not to cry, right? The person on, on screen, once they start weeping, we feel differently, but when we see them holding back the tears, we get much more emotionally involved. And there's, there's a way in which you want the music to, to just hold back until you can't take it anymore. And then it carries the emotion. Now, in a, in a musical, which is a whole different kind of storytelling, where characters are going to sing in ways that people don't ever do in real life, right? There, there's no, in a movie, we pretend like what we're seeing is real in some way. We're, we're, we're supposed to buy into that we're seeing a real thing happen, even though we know it's all been totally faked and put in front of a camera. But in a, in a musical, like, we know already this is not real. Characters don't really sing. And people, uh, a musical can feel flat or fake if a character starts singing before the emotional context justifies it or demands it. So we often say, if, you, if you're writing a script for a musical, when you get to the point where words are not enough, when the emotion is now heightened to the point where you need the music, that's where the music comes in. And when it's done well, you don't, as an audience, necessarily even notice that suddenly everyone is singing. You just feel, you're with them because you feel it, you're ready for it. That love song has to happen or that passionate, you know, I want song has to happen because the character is, is so filled with emotion. That's the only way they can express it. And, and so there's an analog to that in movies where there's a moment when it just, you wanna let the music take us now. Uh, uh, when the words are no longer sufficient. It's interesting that you put it like that because, you know, I'm a, I am a huge musical fan. I love that idea of in musicals, one of the first things you want to do is you want to hear all the music, you want to 
put on the music, but I love that idea. It's like, you actually want to hold it back until it's absolutely like begged for and then release it. And it's kind of like a release in that kind of moment. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, that's very much the, you know, we talk a lot about how a, a, a musical is, the storytelling is linear. We're going linear until we get to the musical moments and then we're expanding vertically, right? We're going deeper into the emotion and no longer just doing exposition and storytelling. We're letting the emotion expand. Uh, and obviously music can, can do both things. It can also continue to tell the story, but that emotional expansiveness is, you know, it's what an aria is in opera. When a character sings, you know, a glorious aria, uh, that character is just going deep into whatever their emotional is, emotion is. And, and we should, as an audience, be drawn in and love being in that emotional soup with them. Music is a form of storytelling, but there's so many layers of storytelling within music as well. And before we dive into that, I just wanted to uh, ask you just quickly to define the difference between orchestration and composing in storytelling terms. Sure. What part do they play? Sure. So, you know, composition is the creation of the creation of the music. That's not really a helpful definition, but, uh, you know, in the traditional Western European sense, uh, a composer like Beethoven was also the orchestrator, right? Beethoven created all of the musical choices in a Beethoven symphony. Mm -hmm. um, but in film music and theater music and a lot of the sonic branding work, uh, there is an orchestrator. So the composers create this music, but they hand it off to an orchestrator who at, at the very least is taking what the composer imagined either on a computer or mm -hmm. jotted on a piece of paper. You know, this is French horns, this is strings, this is gonna be a bassoon and making that, ex making, uh, executing that. So you might uh, today, composers on their computers create mock-ups of all these things and do pretty, you know, faithful uh, sample-based renditions of this, the music on a computer. Um, but you can't just hand that to an orchestra and say, sound like this. You need someone with the technical capacity to translate what's on the computer onto a piece of paper so that the live musicians will, you know, recreate what's on the computer. And in the case of IMAX and a lot of the other things that orchestrators like me do, we're also being asked to enhance what's there, to add something or bring other colors in that might not have been in the original, but that will help bring it more to life. Um, in, in terms of classical music, the, one of the great examples of orchestration versus composition is the piece Pictures at an Exhibition, which was written as a piano piece by Mussorgsky and which Maurice Ravel then took and orchestrated in the version that most people are familiar with. If you hear it, you probably hear the orchestral version. Um, so the original music, the, all the notes and the melodies and the, every, every, all the basic musical ideas, except for the instrumentation was Mussorgsky's. Ravel then took that and figured out what the orchestra would play. And if you know the, you know, the old prog rock band, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, they did a version of pictures at an exhibition that is organ and drums and bass and guitar. So it's a completely different orchestration again, of the same piece of music. Um, 
in a way, orchestration in that sense is just a remix of what the first composer did. Um, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So an orchestrate. Uh, okay. So uh, composition is kind of like script writing, and orchestration is kind of like hiring the actors and having the actors say it and figuring out the right setup. Yeah, that's not a bad analogy for it. It's not a bad analogy, and, and you know, even when a composer has done a complete mock-up on the computer that's got every note in it, that's still not what the orchestra, you know, there's still the step of getting that to be played by an orchestra and um, and the orchestrator plays an important part in understanding what resources are needed and what it looks like on the page for human beings. I mean, it, I feel like this come, we come, I come back to this all the time that the, you know, storytelling is about humans communicating with other humans. And so composing is about communicating music to other human beings as well, but the key part of orchestrating is giving it to live human beings to perform it, which transforms it in a way that, you know, a computer can never achieve. Yeah, and some of my friends who are extraordinary at what they do on the computer, you know, do an amazing job. But every time when we then have the orchestra play it, everybody says, oh my God, I didn't realize it could sound like that, right? That people bring something to it that, that brings it to life. You know, it's 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 collaborative storytelling. It's something we talk about with so many different fields, right? We talked about it with comic book people. We talked about it with uh, product managers. It, collaborative storytelling is so fascinating because it's like you what you were saying about the broken glass with everyone's different view. Each person uh, comes in and adds their own form of storytelling. Each person, like each musician, each uh, director, they all they all add a layer, and if they're not go at their best, it, it can totally falter. So it's so yeah. important that trust in that storytelling form. Absolutely right. So many, yeah, there's so many key words, trust and, you know, how each person is telling their story, contributing their story to the whole thing. Um, you have to invest in it in that kind of way for it to be, uh, for it to shine the way it does. That's one of the reasons why Warhorse was so extraordinary is that the the time and the space and the resources and the care was given so that everybody involved could contribute 110% of themselves to what they were doing. Yeah, um, and also on you know, the, the point of uh, orchestration, uh, being able to translate or enhance uh, what is uh, delivered initially through composition, uh, could you also uh, perhaps give us an example of, you know, uh, you know, uh, a case where uh, you you're able to deliver uh, a, a scent the sentiment of a song uh, particularly well in orchestration. So you know you've worked on the IMAX Sonic Anthem. You've worked on also uh, the theme songs to NBC's Face the Nations and uh, the HBO feature pr presentation songs. These are all you know. Uh, intro kind of anthem to lead people into experiences. So how do you deliver those kind of sentiment through orchestration? Um, good question. I, you know, I'm, the first thing I thought of was work I had done years ago, also with, with Made Music Studio on, uh, for the Golf Channel. It was a series of new pieces for, I think it was for the PGA Tour or something like that, but it was golf, golf music. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sports music tropes. It's going to have some high trumpets in it. It's going to have big drums. It's 
you know, it's kind of the energy of the sporting event. And we delivered a bunch of those things, but because it was also in the context of, uh, you know, a channel that would do some reporting about sports, there needed to be versions of the themes that could work with not just somebody succeeding, but somebody losing, right? And, and what, you know, what do you change to convey sort of the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Um, and how can an instrument choice make a difference? Um, in addition to that, there was also consciousness of God, what if a famous golfer dies? Like we wanna have the music that leads into the broadcast uh, that sets that tone. And that's true of all the news things too, the CBS Evening News that, that we worked on where there's a, you know, there's the standard news intro and then there's the breaking news music and there is the, the tragedy music that sets up the tragic news um, because you don't want to start, you know, a story of some, some terrible cataclysm with bouncy, exciting, hey, it's the news, right? That, that would be offensive and painful for everybody. So uh, there are ways orchestrationally instrument choices that can help convey that. I mean, the, the most obvious one is that the sound of an oboe tends to be a very sad sound. Something about that instrument and that it's got double reeds and it has a kind of plaintive quality. So it's very easy to take a theme, play it on trumpet and it's got a kind of nobility, play it on oboe and suddenly it's mournful and sad. Um, and those are, you know, that you could take, play the same thing on a xylophone and it has a kind of brittle, maybe even comical bouncy quality. So, while those are those might seem like obvious or stereotypical choices they you know and you don't want to use them every time it's not like oh i'm always going to do the oboe for the sad thing but it's useful to be aware that people tend to have these reactions to these sounds and i say people have these reactions to these sounds entirely in a you know western and european context because a lot of this feeling is is also cultural and and, and learned in a cultural context. Uh, so what works uh, you know, in the United States or what works in Great Britain for a certain thing might not be the same in Indonesia or, or you know, India or wherever it might be. And that's a whole other label, label layer of complexity that, uh, that we don't always have to get into, but that is interesting when we start to consider. Uh, how something is going to play outside of a particular culture. That's so interesting. Uh, the, the idea of a like, cultural storytelling and the idea of uh, something we, we were just talking about that you were telling stories to other humans, right? So yep. you want to find the instruments that, you know, pull on those emotional strings. Um, we were talking about trust and, you know, that kind of like bluesy pop type sounds. Yep. Um, you know, we, we watched the trailer for that and you could you could hear that, you know, it's kind of like setting the tone for the entire trailer, which sets the tone for the movie. And you got that kind of that deeper sound. But then when we were talking about sports, it's like the trumpets and the loud and the breaking news, you want to get serious. So that importance of setting the tone with the music is so fascinating because it's it's a mental, it's an emotional thing. And that's going to do it. If you liked this bonus episode and wanted to listen to the original episode, it's called 
why is music not a universal language featuring a musician, Greg Pliska? And of course, if you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. Leave us a comment or review to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. This has been another bonus episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. We hope you're enjoying your holiday season. Happy New Year.